Welcome to Global Brains, the podcast, where we interview AI experts, thought leaders, business executives, as well as young talent all over the world to demystify AI and discuss the latest trends in business and beyond. Our goal is to make AI understandable and accessible to everyone. So let's get started with your host, Michael Burkhart. Welcome back and welcome to all new listeners. Episode number two is full of biases. We spoke about the connection of behavior science and data science. So we basically spoke about us, our behaviors and cognitive limitations and how data science and AI can help us to make better decisions, both in a business context and in our personal life. But of course, we also spoke about our unique strength and why the human element is crucial to identify the problems in the first place. At the end of the day, we leverage curiosity and creativity and we interpret data from a broader context. And most importantly, we put insights into action. So in summary, we had a very positive talk about how humans and machines can work in symbiosis to solve problems together. And when I say we, I mean Jim Gusher, who is the US chief data scientist at Deloitte Consulting. Jim has extensive experience applying predictive analytics in a variety of public and private sectors. And Jim is also a former professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Business School. And he holds a PhD in the philosophy of science from the University of Chicago. But now it's time to start. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for your time. Sure, thank you. So the first question, could you fill in the gaps from the introduction and introduce yourself real quick? Sure. So my name is Jim Gusha. I'm a chief data scientist in the U.S. for Deloitte Consulting. Um, my professional title is data scientist. I've been doing what people now call data science since um, the late 90s, believe it or not. Um, I started doing what we now call machine learning uh, at Allstate Insurance Company's Research Center. I moved to Deloitte in 2001. Uh, still working in insurance back in those early days. And uh, through my work in insurance predictive analytics and kind of deploying these models in insurance companies and sort of working with the underwriters who use models to make better decisions, I got very interested in decision science and behavioral economics. And uh, in recent years, I've been kind of taking a new direction relating to behavioral economics, which is bringing behavioral nudge techniques and choice architecture into our data science practice. So I've been doing this for quite a long time um, and very excited to be here. So you're talking about behavior science and data science. What is the connection between both? So yeah, I, I've made two connections over time. One is that um, a major function of data science, and I don't want to say this is only the only function of data science, but a major function of data science is sort of providing evidence and providing signals and indications and data products that help people make better decisions. In some cases, we can simply just automate decisions, and that's 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 a big part of what people now call artificial intelligence. Um, but a lot of times, data science is used to help people make better decisions, maybe de-biased decisions. And I got interested in behavioral economics originally because a, a major theme of behavioral economics. Um, and, and this kind of branches of psychology that underpin behavioral economics is that unaided judgment is actually pretty bad at making decisions, and that's why we need the help of data science. And that's just a, that, that's kind of how I got interested in this. Is that um, the, the implication of that is that a major um, reason for the success of kind of data analytic techniques in the business world 
is not just because of big data and algorithms and pattern recognition. Those are the themes that get a lot of press. But a big reason for the success, and this is kind of forgotten very often, is that the sort of alternate to using algorithms to make decisions is pretty bad, um, unaided judgment. Um, Daniel Kahneman wrote this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, to summarize a lot of this research. And he basically said there are two, diff- two types of mental operations, um, thinking fast and thinking slow. He called them system one and system two. And system two is what we think we do very often, which is make logical decisions using kind of deliberation and kind of weighing the evidence carefully. Um, Kahneman's news for us is actually most of our mental operations are thinking fast in nature. And the big headline discovery is that thinking fast is pretty bad at statistics. And that's just kind of a fundamental truth that um, I think people give lip service to, but it's, it's, it's often forgotten in data science and AI circles. So that's, that's one connection I've made over time. Okay. I, I haven't made it. I, you know, it's been made for me, but I've been <laughs> trying to act on it and, and amplify the message. The second is the, uh, what I call the last mile problem of data science, which is that algorithms only provide economic value if they're acted upon, if, if they're somehow used to guide decisions. And again, it could be automatic decisions. You just like turn the algorithm on and it's like a robot, just kind of like recommending movies for you or something like that, or scanning handwritten digits in an envelope and sending the envelope to the right routing center for the U.S. Post, for, the, for a postal service. Okay. Or, you know, they, they could be used to kind of inform human decisions. And, again, human decisions can be thinking slow or thinking fast in nature. Um, and so just that kind of process of thinking about how do we act on algorithmic indications got me um, interested in this idea of bringing choice architecture into yep. data science. That's something else we could talk about. Mm, so what I understand from that is that machines can be good at automating certain tasks and big data is something um, that is maybe overestimated to a certain degree. And not everything is related to data only, but it's important to follow a human-centric approach to first identify problems, ask questions, and and then design a solution around it. And algorithms might be a good at aiding the decision-making process, but at the end of the day, the human is acting on the solutions or recommendations. That's right. Yeah. So we can drill into artificial intelligence a, a little bit. I, that, that, I agree with, with everything you just said. Um, where to start? You know, artificial intelligence um, is an old label. It's an old phrase. It goes back to 19, 1956. It was introduced by Marvin Minsky and his, his collaborators at a conference held at Dartmouth University back in the mid-50s. Um, and it's gone through several ups and downs, and that tagline is now back with us. It's, it's, you know, it's become a real force in the business world and the larger society. But I, you know, I, my background is actually philosophy, <laughs> and so I, I, I often um, reflect on how much our use of language affects the way we think about things. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that even though people, um, they might not explicitly say this, I think unconsciously I think people still have this lingering idea that artificial intelligence is about building machines that are smart in in ways that are more or less approximate the way humans are smart. And that's really not true at all. Um, You know, going going back to the Kahneman uh, story from a few minutes ago, um, we're actually really bad at things machines are actually really good at. I, I just said we're really bad at weighing evidence. We're really good at kind of like, you know, figuring out how much weight to give, you know, a different, uh, you know, predictive variable, for example, when we make a decision or a judgment, we think we're kind of 
weighing together, you know, the right bits of information in our head, more or less the way a regression model kind of weights together mm. um, bits of information. But we're actually not. We're, we're telling stories that, that are kind of like narratively coherent well, and that, that seem very they, they seem very plausible to us. And actually the more kind of, even if they're predictably irrelevant details you add to the story, it seems more coherent and more predictive and more, and more plausible. And it gives you the sense of overconfidence. Machines don't do that at all. They're actually really good at, at, at weighing together variables. And, that, and that's something that's deeply counterintuitive to people. Mm. But at the same time, th- that's great. So that, that, that's like a, a very useful thing for machines to do. But, the, but they're not smart in the way humans are smart. They're not smart in very, very important ways in the sense that they don't, they don't have general intelligence. You know, general intelligence is what's characteristic of human psychology. Yeah. We're, you know, we're, both, we're both good at reading and doing math and cooking and learning, learning to play tennis. Um, you know, we, we can do a lot of things, whereas machines are kind of optimized to do one thing and one thing only. You know, an algorithm that's, that's used to kind of retrieve information like IBM Watson or, you know, diagnose somebody with a disease, you know, those, those are two algorithms, but they'd be worthless at switching places and trying to do the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they, they, can, they can kind of run circles around us at very narrow tasks, and that's great, but they, as you said earlier, they can't set the goals they can't handle exceptions. They can't um, apply common sense or context or ethical reasoning. These are all really important things that humans are actually quite good at. And so, the, so even though we talk about artificial intelligence, it, the, the term itself, it, it, you know, terms are fine, but the term itself sort of misleads you from what we're really trying to achieve, which is the synthesis of human and computer uh, intelligence. We, we, we want these two things to act together. Um, yeah. So, so from let's say from a business perspective, somebody mm. who has not a technical background and doesn't understand data science to such a de- detail as you do, um, what like recommendation, what tips would you give that person in terms of what skills to acquire? Because mm. artificial intelligence, you were you were talking about insurance uh, in the beginning, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you can basically apply it to you can apply it to human resource to Internet of Things, to marketing, to mm-hmm. sales. Um, mm-hmm. So what general skills? For, for a business person, a general business person? Yeah, I think this, this is great. I, 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 it's a great question. I, I think that it would be actually quite good for more business people to take just kind of like a general survey. I don't even want to call it a course. You know, maybe some kind of like a you know certificate program online would do the trick. Uh, but just some kind of... A training that would kind of give people sort of a working intuition for what a regression model really is, or what a decision tree model is, or what a random forest model is, or what a neural network is, or what a deep learning model is. Um, it's not clear that those that people have actually a working intuition for a lot of these terms, and it, it, it can kind of lead to a sort of magical thinking or kind of like over interpretation of what these techniques are, are capable of in different contexts. In, so, in some contexts, you know, a, a, a deep learning model is just a thing. It can actually revolutionize an industry and have a huge economic impact. In other cases, it's just not apropos. Um, even some data scientists get, get caught up in this. You know, sometimes people confuse um, volume of data or the complexity of an algorithm with the economic value it's capable of creating. And the fact is, different techniques are more or less useful in different contexts. Sometimes the right algorithm won't even necessarily be based on a lot of quantitative data. Sometimes an algorithm might just be um, a, a way of kind of debiasing human judgments when they're making sort of like high-stakes decisions that you can't necessarily build a, a regression or a machine learning model on. Um, 
so I think just kind of having a better, not necessarily a technical knowledge of how to build models in Python or R, but just sort of like a better working intuition for what these things are, I think would kind of help demystify things and give um, enable people to make more realistic decisions in, in planning. Mm, okay, all right. So we were talking about debiasing people. Um, mm. what, what are your favorite, let's say, biases that, that jeopardize <laughs> decisions in business and personal life? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase Kahneman here because he's the master I'm, mm -hmm. of acolyte, right? Um, I, I think overconfidence is at the root of a lot of, a lot of bad decisions. There, there, there are dozens of cognitive biases, right? It's like okay. you can have like great cocktail party conversations. Classical economists tend to diss this field a little bit because it just kind of seems like piling up a lot of like cute little anecdotes. And, you know, the, the suspicion is that, you know, a lot of these things actually might go away in real world contexts. But that's, that's, that, that's not true. I, you know, some, some of these are very deep abiding features of human psychology that we, that we just kind of would do well to take into account. But I think the granddaddy of them all is, is overconfidence. Um, you, you, you hear a narrative and, it, you know, or you just kind of have an initial impression, right? Or you're, maybe say you're interviewing somebody. And you're interviewing somebody. It's like, oh, you went to University of Amsterdam. Hey, so did I. Oh, wait, you took this class. Oh, great, I did too. Oh, you 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 like that movie? So did I. You begin to like that person, mm -hmm. and you just kind of hit it off right away. And it's just like a very you don't you don't think this is happening, but it is. You know that that kind of initial impression colors everything that comes afterwards, and you kind of selectively process information to kind of conform to the initial halo effect or the initial kind of impression, the initial kind of emotional commitment to a person or a project or whatever it is. And that's just a, that, that's a very powerful psychological force that is happening even though we're blind to it. And even though we, though we consciously think we're, we're not falling prey to it. Um, it's kind of a paradox. It affects all of us, but we're just completely blind to what's going on in our own heads. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a surprise, but yeah, I, I think, but I think, The reason I, I say overconfidence is kind of like my favorite or I think the most notorious is that it's, it's kind of like a general short-circuiting of rationality. You know, it, it's just something we really need to be kind of conscious of and kind of like work hard to kind of overcome. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's, I don't think any organization has really cracked it as much as they should have. So you are talking about biases for many hours a day sometimes. How did it change your way of thinking? Are you very conscious? Do you mm -hmm. oftentimes think about, okay, right now there's this bias that happened to me and right now I'm aware about it so I can get rid of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if, if people really care about my personal story, but, yeah, it, you know, professionally, you know, kind of thinking about cognitive biases and how it relates to data science has, has kind of been revolutionary for me on a professional level, right? It's, it helps me better explain why predictive algorithms in many situations add significant economic value and help overcome inefficient markets. And it also helps us, you know, kind of operationalize models better by thinking about choice architecture. So professionally, it's had those kind of major effects. Personally, yeah, it affects me every day, every day. I, you know, kind of think about, you know, gee, I'm willing to drive across town to save, you know, you know, $5 on a $50 meal, but I wouldn't, you know, do the same thing, you know, if it was $5 on a, you know, on buying a new car, mm. it's just $5 either way. Right. I mean, there, 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 or there's loss aversion. There's, you know, you know, the kind of pushing a project and this is professional too, I suppose. You know, I'll, I'll push a project at work just because I just love the idea of it. Right. I, I, I fall prey to this. and I realize it, you know, I'm, 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 
just as irrational as the next guy, even though I'm conscious of it. So someone will pitch me an idea for a research project they'd like to do or something that I think would just be like an amazing ser- possible service offering for my, for, for my company. And I'm saying, guys, we should try this. This could be a great opportunity for us. And maybe I'm being overly affected by just how much I basically like the project or how compelling the lead scientist was to me on a personal basis. Maybe I'm, maybe people are, you know, wrong to, to discount it. Or maybe I've got a point and maybe, you know, they're taking an overly risk-averse, uh, narrow-framing way of evaluating this risky project. Who knows? But either way, you know, when I have these interactions, both in my personal life or in a work setting, I'm definitely thinking about the possibility of cognitive biases. And I, I think that's not a bad thing. I think that's... Um, I, I think that, you know, writing articles, having podcasts like this, and I, I can sort of foresee a day, and this is just a speculation, right, but I can foresee a day when companies actually have, you know, cognitive bias training sessions for their employees. Not, and, and the premise would not be that having these training sessions will remove cognitive biases. Absolutely not. But at least giving people this kind of common language to talk, to talk about this. Um, is a useful first step. In, in a way, that's already been done, right? In, in a way, books like Predictably Irrational, Nudge, Thinking Fast and Slow, The Undoing Project, Misbehaving, you know, there's this kind of shelf of books that many of us have on our shelves. Hmm. But, you know, I'd say that not everybody in the business world has read these things. And, you know, often it's, you know, the exposure is based on a couple of magazine articles. And the the, the, the phrases are kind of repeated but not necessarily understood all that well. So, you know, it's, it's a process, you know, but, you know, in the past 10 years, this has made huge inroads into the business world and the larger culture. I can, I can foresee a day when it'll be even more kind of common currency. And, and I think that kind of like having people understand these processes is like a really good first step to figure out how to address them. Mm. Yeah. And actually, I, I think our mind has to be conscious 100%. Otherwise, um, we will never be able to yeah, get rid of these biases, right? Because some things just happen in our subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I, yeah, no, I think that's right. I, and also, I don't want to, um, yeah, I don't want to create, you know, a one-sided narrative. Bias-free world. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, a lot of times, you know, what we call quote-unquote biases are just kind of like, you know, simple heuristics for making decisions that are just fine, you know? So, you know, if, if I have this in, in my personal life, if I have this kind of like little heuristic saying, every time I order fish, I'll order the white wine instead of the red wine, that, that kind of gets me through life. There might be something that's a bit more optimal. Maybe there's some cases where I prefer a certain red with a certain kind of fish. But you know what? That kind of simple heuristic is kind of good enough. It's just that when we're making high-stakes decisions sometimes, like, you know, should I admit this patient to the emergency room versus sending them home? Should I hire this person or not? Will this person be a good employee? Does this person deserve a promotion? Should I underwrite this insurance risk? You know, should I sell, you know, injured workers insurance to this cafe in Amsterdam? Yeah. You know, these, these are all decisions where those sort of like little rules of thumb don't always serve us so well. And, you know, now there's a lot of talk about um, gender and racial biases in workplaces and, you know, improving the uh, hiring, retention, and pro- progression of women and minorities in workplaces. And there's you know, good reason to think that the reason why this is such a big issue is because of the kind of cognitive biases 
they're not necessarily malicious. They, they, they can operate on people who are, have the best intentions in the world. But they, as I said, we, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not consciously aware of biases in our own decision-making, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. And so kind of like at least acknowledging them, at least understanding these processes, as I said, is a first step to addressing them. It, you know, rather than just kind of – because if you, if you don't understand the nature of the science – you might, you know, this is, this is, you know, a big part of scientific thinking, right? It's like, if you don't understand the root causes of something, then the actions you take to remedy the, the situation might not work. Mm. So if the, if the root cause of, if, if you don't, if we don't understand the, the root cause of, say, for example, gender bias in the workplace, are these kinds of cognitive biases, you know, these kinds of like thinking fast sets of associations, mm. implicit associations, then you might just say, oh, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, you know, institute diversity training. That'll take care of it. Well, you know, a, a lot of the scholars who study this say, actually, there's not a lot of evidence that diversity training works. You know, so having a deeper understanding of both where the biases come from and how to overcome bias cognition, you know, this is really more through choice architecture than through kind of, you know, rational training. Mm. Um, that might be a more natural step forward. Mm. I guess it's always the case, right? If you become mm. conscious about certain problems, certain issues, and in this case, if you understand why your brain is thinking in a specific way, um, mm -hmm. it might be a way more efficient process as when somebody is just telling you what to do or what is necessary or uh, what you should do. But um, mm -hmm. self-awareness is, I guess, the key to a lot of things. And also when you talk about biases and you talk about, okay, um, some biases are just natural and they, they should be there. I mean, our mm -hmm. brain is consuming up to 25% of calories. And I think if we, are get, if we get rid of all biases, I think we have to eat a lot of food. <laughs> yes, and like, that's right. I guess, I guess the fast thinking is, is oftentimes very convenient. No, that's exactly right. That, that, that's, 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 that's excellent. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. You know, this is not like it's all bad news. We just want to be kind of, you know, recognize, you know, when are the heuristics good? When are they, you know, when, when do they have unwanted effects? And, and, and also realize that there are different ways of overcoming biases or, or making it easier to make decisions. All, you know, everything we're talking about is making decisions, right? This is like, you know, how, how do we enable individual people and organizations to make smarter decisions? That's kind of like the common theme of all these topics, data science, artificial intelligence, choice architecture, and so on. In some cases, the issue is have a robot automate the decision. You know, if it's really, really simple, if it's just kind of like a explicit set of instructions that can do the trick, there's this thing called robotic process automation that will do it. You know, if it's simple questions that are matter of fact, have a chatbot do it, right? Have a robot do it. As soon as, you know, kind of context and empathy and common sense comes into the play or just give me some of the emotional support, maybe bring a human on board. Um, or maybe the right kind of human, because <laughs> not all humans are really good at giving the emotional support. But yeah, then in other cases, you don't, you don't want to short-circuit human rationality. You want to actually improve human rationality. And that can be through a combination of, you know, kind of algorithmic or data science decision-making or sort of choice architecture. And the idea of choice architecture is that it can kind of improve our decision-making in ways that are sort of automatic. Rather than try to, you know, choice architecture is all about, instead of trying to, you know, give people tools or data or dashboards or evidence to make more, quote, rational decisions... That, that, that's great sometimes but some, sometimes it might be more effective to just sort of change the environment in these sort of subtle ways that, that can make it more natural or easy for people to make the right decision without really thinking about it 
that's so the you, idea of nudge. Yeah, exactly. Now you're you're touching on on nudging, right? So mm. uh, let's elaborate a little bit on on that. Um, mm -hmm. So so basically, one very easy example to explain this is you go shopping, I think, and you mm -hmm. um, want to. You are hungry. Let's imagine you're very hungry. You go into a shopping center. You go into a grocery store, and um, the expensive and sometimes unhealthy food is in eyesight, basically. So what you do, mm -hmm. you take the food, you buy it, and uh, you go home and eat something that you were not supposed to eat. <laughs> But this is something you can also apply in the other direction, right? So you can positively uh, influence people in the mm -hmm. sense that you give them, um, you make them aware about mm -hmm. something. And how does it apply to, um, to data science? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, like that's, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the, the idea is that it's, it, it, let's just take a step back. You know, it, it's, it's kind of easy. Sometimes it's easiest to introduce the idea of nudge and choice architecture by talking about what the alternative is. Yeah. So the sort of like idealized alternative to the kind of choice architecture nudge way of looking at the world is that it, it's the perspective of rash of classical economic economics. And what kind of, you know, classical economics in its purest form posits is that in principle there are only two ways of changing human behavior. One is to tell people something they didn't know before. In other words, give them information, right? If they, I, I didn't know that there are these three, these great characteristics of this person. I, yeah, I should definitely hire this person, not the other person. That was the kind of money ball story. We should hire this baseball player, not that. because I wasn't weighing the evidence properly. The other way to change behavior, according to classical economists, is to offer incentives. You know, if, if you raise the price or lower the price, tell somebody if they, you know, if they speed, then we're going to send them, you know, we're going to give them a fine. Um, you know, if, if you misreport your earnings uh, when you're applying for unemployment insurance benefits, you might get caught and it, it might be really bad for you. You know, so the only way to change behavior is to either give people information that they didn't know before or set up economic carrot and stick incentives. And what that's sort of like an idealized picture of, of humanity. It's really, mm -hmm. you know, closer to Mr. Spock from Star Trek than yeah. any real life human. In the in the real world, it's not just the it's not just the information you provide people or the choices you offer them. The way the choices are arranged, it turns out, can have disproportionate effects on the choices people actually make. So, like, back to the grocery store example, if you're shopping at Royal Dutch Aholds, um, would you rather buy, you know, a cut of meat that was advertised 90% fat-free or 10% fat? You know, logically, the two uh, expressions convey the exact same information, but <laughs> few people <laughs> would buy a product that said 10% fat on the label. They'd, they'd, they'd much rather buy the product that says 90% fat-free. Okay. Or, as you said, if something, you know, is sort of like... And marketers have known this for a long time. If you, if you make something visually appealing, if you put it right by the checking checkout counter, if you make it, like, easily accessible within arm's reach, you know, the way books are arranged in bookstores, food items are arranged in stores, that will certainly affect... Um, The choice people, choices people make. So, in a sense, a lot, you know, the, the general thought process is not new. It goes back to, you know, Don Draper and Mad Men. It goes back to the advertising, uh, you know, um, world going back generations. In fact, one of the original Ad Men was a, you know, um, I believe related to Sigmund Freud. Um, so, so in in a sense, marketers and advertising people have been using psychology for a long time. The idea of knowledge and choice architecture is. Let's, um, A, 
add a little bit more science to this, you know, kind of like add kind of behavioral insights that we've learned from recent decades of psychological research, B, offer up sort of a rigorous way of testing these, these hypotheses and saying, does this intervention work in a certain context? So, you know, okay, sure, maybe we can, you know, not just use, um, you know, just to manipulate people into buying a certain product. Maybe, you know, if I'm a, if I run a cafeteria, maybe at my company, I think Google actually talked about doing this. You know, if, if we want our employees to be healthier, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, we can put the, the you know, healthy snacks um, more easily accessible, make the, put the less healthy snacks in more of an opaque bin that you actually have to consciously reach towards. And maybe they'll make people a bit more deliberate. Maybe they'll be, do a little bit less mindless eating. That's the hypothesis. Well, you can actually test that hypothesis by, you know, doing it one canteen but not the other. Or do an N of one experiment and do it some weeks but not the other, and just and just you know see see what happens to people's um, consumption behaviors. So those are simple examples of how choice architecture can um, um, you know affect people's decisions. The whole point about data science, this is sort of like the two and two I put together a few years ago, is that the kind of classical way of thinking about algorithms or algorithmic decision makings is you know you help people overcome their bounded rationality, their bounded cognition through the use of algorithms. So, you know, an algorithm in, a, in, in say, a medical setting can weigh together 50 bits of information much better than a physician can weigh together five bits of information, you know, five symptoms. Mm. And furthermore, the algorithm will make the same decision before lunch versus after lunch, where a physician, if he or she is tired, might make a more risk-averse or, like, a, a safer bet or a default decision they, they might switch a hard decision with an, unconsciously with an easy decision if, if the person is low on blood sugar. So, you know, algorithms can be very, very effective in helping people make these sort of like deliberate thinking slow decisions, making diagnoses, making job offers, you know, making uh, university admissions decisions, making parole decisions you know, in jurisprudence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but a lot of times algorithms are used in ways that you can't really operationalize them in that, in that same way. Um, I had this kind of revelation when I was thinking about um, a predictive algorithm project I worked on about 10 years ago for the state of Pennsylvania. I used the same sort of methodology. I even recycled some of the same R programs that I use in an insurance context to help underwriters make better underwriting decisions. But in this case, the the um, application was let's evaluate the likelihood that a non-custodial divorced parent will fall behind on his or her child on, on his child support payments it's usually a he so in other words the divorced parent is supposed to be paying child support payments to the custodial parent the, the parent um, who, who with whom the child lives mm-hmm. and the idea is that we can actually hopefully change the jobs of child support enforcement officers officers away from being reactive to being proactive. You know, currently the way things work, or, you know, before algorithms were introduced, the, the job of child support of an officers was to kind of react to custodial parents calling in and saying, hey, I'm no longer collecting my benefits. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if they have algorithms, then maybe they can kind of, like, foresee, they can predict the people who might be currently paid up but are at danger of falling into arrears, falling behind on the child support payments. That's great. That's a really helpful thing to do. And we, we built and deployed this model, and everybody was happy with it. It won an award. But then later, I was reading up on some of the behavioral nudge choice architecture literature, and I realized, wait a minute, we could have offered a complementary service offering. If in addition to setting up the algorithm, if we actually field tested, ran randomized control trials 
on certain behavioral interventions, behavioral finance interventions, though, excuse me, um, then maybe we could give the child support enforcement officers um, better tools to help people prevent themselves from falling behind on child support payments. So maybe, you know, using um, apps or maybe using um, pre-commitment devices, say commitment cards or, you know, a, cer a certain kind of mindset training. These are all techniques that we can kind of hypothesize and then roll out in the field and say, hey, does this actually help move the needle and actually help well-intended people to keep up with their payments? It would be kind of like a behavioral finance application, but it would be completely complementary to the predictive analytics. So in other words, the, the models can kind of, kind of point out to caseworkers or field officers the cases that need attention, and then choice architecture help us kind of what I call go the last mile, can give us tools to, um, to act on those algorithmic indications. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit different from you know, saying using an algorithm to you know, hire this person, not that, or underwrite this risk, but not that, or make this rather than that medical diagnosis. Those are all the classical, you know, very, very good, you know, economically beneficial um, applications of predictive analytics. What I'm saying is that for these other cases, where it's kind of pointing out cases where people need to change their behavior, that's where marrying choice architecture with, with predictive analytics um, can really create a very valuable fusion, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so I have one more question left, actually. Sure. That is, I think, interesting for people that are, let's say, entering college right now. So imagine you would be 18 years old again. Uh-huh. With the knowledge and experience you have right now. Yeah. Um, what would you do? What skills <laughs> would you acquire? On what topics would you focus? Yeah. I don't know if I have a great answer to that because like, people are so different. Mm. Um, you know, but this is a cliche from another uh, organization that I'm going to repeat because I actually believe in it. I, I think becoming T-shaped um, is the way to go. You know, to just go deep in one discipline. It might not be your discipline for your whole life, but, you know, I don't care if it's data science or, you know, cognitive psychology or physics or whatever it is. Just go deep in one field and attain a real mastery of something. But don't neglect the liberal arts don't neglect the kind of like broad perspective that will enable associative thinking okay um you know because the point is that going deep in one field the process of, of going deep in that one field not only will it give you skills that will help you get a job eventually it'll kind of like give you the knowledge or kind of like teach you what it's like to learn a discipline you know so you might become a data scientist now maybe you'll retool and become something a little bit different 10 years from now mm. but you know but you have that ability to kind of go deep in something but it, but it's also but it's but it's also important to have kind of a broad perspective because you, you want to kind of be literate in all these different fields you, you know like, like we were saying before if you want to become a business leader it's good to know a little bit about statistics right it's, it's good to have taken like a core a, a hopefully a really good course in statistics so that when people talk about the kind of premises of machine learning you're kind of making an informed decision not just something based on bullet points or based on a newspaper article you read somewhere so kind of like you know getting a broad perspective that kind of facilitates better decision making kind of like also the kind of associative thinking that leads to um, innovation and actually coming up with solutions to people's problems mm. so 
don't know if that's helpful, but that's kind of what I would say. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that totally makes sense. It's just it just takes a while, right? So it's to become an expert can take can take a while depending on on the field you are getting into. Well, um, I mean, you know, I mean, just operationally, just you know, or just you know, kind of like in terms of tangible advice. If you're going to university, I would just say, you know, take a major really, really seriously, but don't only do the major. You know, try try to try to get a a, a broad education as well. I, the, the, I maybe this doesn't resonate as much in Europe, but in the U.S., I I kind of noticed this trend that university education is becoming a bit more vocational in nature and liberal arts departments are feeling more threatened. And I sort of, um, this may be contrarian, I think that the more artificial intelligence plays a role in, in, um, in business, the more we're going to need people to be more human and more humanistic and have a broader perspective. And so I think there's going to be more rather than less need for people who are kind of trained and to have broad perspectives um, than we've had in the past when people are, are you know, asked to be more like, technicians in the workplace yeah yeah exactly all right so in one of the articles i read there you quoted um you quoted somebody and you basically said um one of the reasons of the financial crisis um was basically because there are very smart people that understand the math and <laughs> they're very smart people that understand the world um but uh, those people have to understand both sides otherwise there's no communication possible That's exactly right. I was quoting John Kay in the Financial Times, the, the economist who used to be a Financial Times uh, uh, columnist. Yeah, and that's right. When somebody asked him, why is it the case that these, you know, these kind of asset valuation models built by Harvard, Cambridge, MIT, PhDs led to these horrible decisions? And that's what he said. He said the people that built the, the, the understood the math and built the models didn't understand the world, and the people in the world who were making decisions didn't understand the models. And I thought that was just a, a, a very, very um, smart diagnosis. And we're seeing more of a need for this thing where people who understand, the, you know, who are making decisions in the world, they need to understand the math, right? So if a doctor is using an algorithm to make a diagnosis, he should have a good, he or she should have a good mental model of the premise of that technology that, he's, that he or she is using. In other words, it should not just be some kind of like a crystal ball or an oracle or a black box. It should, you know... It should offer some kind of guidance as to why it's giving the indication it is. So there's some something. It's part of this is incumbent upon the people building the algorithms to make sure these algorithms are transparent and explainable and sort of built to the needs of the human end user. So it's kind of a user-centered design idea for for AI. But it's also incumbent upon the decision maker to understand a little bit about the math and the data science. And so we, I think we're going to need more and more of these kinds of hybrids. So again, more more need for T-shaped people. Mm, yeah. So I think those are very good final words for today's podcast. I think augmented intelligence, bringing in the human side as mm -hmm. well the, as the technical side and learning more about ourselves, about our own mental models, about our biases. Um, but not forget about um, some technical knowledge, at least to a degree that we understand where are the limitations of technology, how can technology actually help us. And then I think um, we can look into the future with more positivity and don't think too much about doomsday, AI, singularity and other approaches and concepts. Well said. Okay, all right. Then thank you so much, Jim, for your time. Thank you. All right. It was a pleasure talking. This episode of Global Brains, the podcast has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more insights and the latest trends in the AI world. Always aiming to make AI accessible to everyone. Also, don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best content. If you work in the AI field or want to, join our community by following the link in the description. See you in the next episode.